I should have picked another day other than this morning to do Revelation before we started the, the series tonight, but some of you asked, either in texting or afterwards, uh, where in Revelation uh, is does the rapture of the church take place? And um, just to answer that before we, we plunge into to tonight, um, the church disappears uh, in the book of Revelation after the end of chapter 3. So you have a lot of talk about the church in chapter 1 and in these specific letters written to the church in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then once you get to the throne room, you don't hear about the church again until the marriage supper of the Lamb and then the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming with his saints to reign. And that's where the church picks back up. And so is there a specific passage in Revelation that speaks about the, the rapture. You would have to go to 1 Thessalonians uh, and then 1 Corinthians 15 to see the actual rapture language and connect those two things together. But where uh, you find that, if you will, in, in silence in, uh, in, in the, book of, the book of Revelation. And I want you to open there again tonight to Revelation 22. And I want to read some passages that we did not read this morning. We're going to start reading in verse 6. Revelation 22, verse 6. He said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God, the, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And drop down to verse 10. Revelation 22, verse 10. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. And he tells us why. For the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, verse 12, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then drop down to verse 18. One of the most ominous words in the, in the whole book. It closes it all out. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. And then a final statement in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And then there's the response, Amen. <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus. And we saw the, this morning the call to sinners to, to come, the call for the Lord to come, the Spirit and the bride says come, and then God's call to sinners to, to come. But the final book of the Bible also ends with a testimony of the faithfulness and the truthfulness of what Revelation says, and a command not to conceal it, but to proclaim it openly. And then there is that warning that we just read, not to alter it in, in any way. We're not to add or to take away from its contents, meaning we're not to put the book of Revelation, or I think prophecy in general, on some prophetic shelf and let it collect dust and pretend it doesn't matter. And this is unlike how the book of Daniel ends. I mean, Daniel is the revelation of the Old Testament, and Daniel ends in chapter 12 in a very different way. It's very similar. The language is almost identical, but it flips. I mean, Daniel is told at the end of his prophecy something different. Listen to Daniel 12, in 12 verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase and there and there's... This, this, the filthy will be filthy still. Very similar to what Revelation says here. 
Daniel 12, 9. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Daniel's told to conceal these words and seal up the, the book until the end of, uh, of time. There's, there's a mystery that, that will not be revealed in Daniel's times. We obviously, Daniel writes the book and we get to read the book. But now John is told something completely different. Don, uh, John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. John is told the words of his prophecy are, are, are unveiled, are, are laid open, and they're to be proclaimed, they're, they're to be shared. The truths about the eschaton, the end, are not only to be openly proclaimed in these, in these last days, but they're to be proclaimed because it is the last days. Still much to come at the end of Daniel, but there's nothing else to come in, in Revelation. The Old Testament could not see the gap between the first and second comings of the, of the Messiah. It just kind of saw the, the high points of the mountain range, but, but, but not, the, not the gap. And the New Testament then reveals this mystery, the mystery of the gap, the mystery of the Gentiles coming in to the people of God and God's purposes in that. And, but now, at the end of Revelation, the Old Testament prophecies have been given, the New Testament mysteries have been revealed, and the final chapter, which is Revelation, has been added, and so the book is to be made clear to the church and to all mankind. I mean, if you want to put what God says to John here in plain language, God says, because I've done all of this, we're warned not to ignore it, and we're warned not to monkey with it. Then anyone who would read those words at the end of Revelation 22. I mean, that's serious stuff, isn't it? I mean, wow, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book, the plagues that you and I heard this morning. Ugh. Or worse, probably. God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city. I mean, are there any more serious words than, than, than those two statements? So it's serious, but, but as we saw this morning, it's also glorious, right? I mean, it's motivating. The imminent return of Jesus Christ, His second coming, and His reign in His earthly intermediate kingdom, when the earth will be returned to Eden-like scenario in which will then give way to His glory and the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, it just gets better and better from there. I and mean, that's like rocket fuel hope to a Christian and motivation to persevere in serving this one, one who is coming. And, and where you land on, on these events, how they're going to unfold, are they going to come it affects how you view the role of the church right now and the purpose uh, that it has in the world. It, it shapes the way that you think the, uh, about what you're supposed to be doing right now in, in the world. And, and, and it can also either diminish or fuel your hope as a believer and your motivation for perseverance. It develops your theology of suffering, what we're supposed to do until the Lord comes. What's it going to be like until, until, the, until the Lord comes? And so, so tonight, I, I'm going to begin uh, our spring series. We call it spring, but I guess it felt like spring last week, but there's probably some time that's not going to feel much like spring here in next month. And, and my job is to, is to help show you all this and, and more, even in the introduction. I want to show you the earthly reign of Christ matters. And I want to want to encourage you in, in, in the hope that, that it brings. And, and we're doing this series. The elders have decided to do this series because I'm not sure every Christian understands that enough, that, that the earthly reign of Christ matters and, and, and why. I mean, I know I didn't. And I believed it. I was taught that. Uh, coming out of a very wooden dispensational background, maybe some of, of yours. I mean, one of the first books that anyone ever gave me on eschatology end times was the, the, the book of charts by Clarence Larkin. I mean, weird stuff in there. Um, gap theory. I mean, it, it, you just had to study this thing. I mean, this guy, I don't know 
must have been an engineer, Rich, but he had it all laid out. And most of it was wrong, okay? But it looked really, really, really important and, and, and good. I mean, and in that background, the walls of discontinuity between the Old and the New, the New Covenant, the Old and the New Testament was so high, I was taught that the Old Testament saints are saved by law and the New Testament saints are saved by grace. There are two New Covenants. There's one New Covenant for the Old uh, uh, for Israel, there's one new covenant for for Christians, for Gentiles, and which which is not true at all. Regardless of your background, um, that my background, I think most Christians lack the so what of eschatology. Um, and I believe biblical premillennialism gives you the so what. I mean, gives you to you with with just abundant force. I've read so many things over the last month or so. I, I don't know who this came from, so I'll give credit to whoever it is if you run across it. Uh, I was reading this, this pastor. It was a comical story. This pastor said a few years ago, said I was in England preaching in some churches in London, in the London area, and I spoke one night in a crowded Methodist chapel where many were singing the chorus, Our God Reigns. And I was amused as I looked at the song sheet, which for the congregation was singing, the congregation was singing, and the typist had made an error in the title of the hymn, and it read, Our God Resigns. He went on to say, many Christians act as if that's true, <laughs> that God has resigned. He said, but He is not. Our God reigns. This is what we must declare. We must show it on our faces and let it be heard in our voices. God will come and the terrible times will end. We in Israel will one day hear the welcome summons, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house, Isaiah 52, 11. I think that story sets the stage well for our for our series, which is titled, He Must Reign, as in On the Earth. Subtitle, The Biblical Position of Premillennialism. And its purpose is to show you why the earthly reign of Christ matters and to encourage you in the life-shaping hope that it, that it brings. I mean, the song error is a helpful illustration, I think, because, because I think some Christians fully believe in the, the doctrine of the, the second coming of Jesus, regardless of what you think about the, the kingdom, whether it's spiritual or literal. But they live lives as if it has very little importance. I mean, do you think about eschatology actually transforming the way that you live? It should. And that's all over the New Testament. The coming of Christ, the, the kingdom of Christ was the was hope. That was the that was what was to motivate you to live pleasing to the Lord, whether absent or present. And that coming again to reign is over all things. They, they, they amen that when, when they hear that Christ is reigning in heaven now and coming again, but but if you would judge their eschatology by their actions, I, I think Sadly, it looks more like God's resigned. I mean, instead of him coming with a glorious trumpet blast, I mean, one of those little party poppers would, would seem like a more appropriate uh, announcement instrument the way some people live. And I think the reason of that is not lack of interest or outright complacency on their part, but, but rather no one has ever given them a clear reason or a biblical articulation to think otherwise. Like, actually showed them. At least that was my case. I was taught about when these things happen in the buckets, but, but no one ever gave me a, a full-throated, whole counsel of God, biblical articulation. Why? I mean, I think the church, quite frankly, has done a poor job with helping its people understand why eschatology matters beyond overly complicated charts and fictional books followed by really bad movies. You probably watched some, right? I mean, sadly for some Christians, the extent of their grasp of the end times is from strange programs on satellite TV that run late at night with guys with really bad hair, really big hair. And if you've never received a biblical grasp of this truth, then 
and how that instructs and motivates your, your life right now, then you're in for a treat. As Tim reminded me, our beloved, uh, our, our beloved Dr. Dr. Zimmick said, biblical prophecy always has an ethical outflow. The prophets didn't just write to give us information or to speak in the air, but for motivation, to move us to expectant obedience. And their words about eschatology are, are to give us hope in the purposes and the promises of God, leading the church to stand resolute in its mission on the earth. Or to say it simply, I mean, knowing the end with precision will give the church and you the courage to persevere and to stick to its task and not wander off in the weeds or get distracted from its mission. And that's what we hope to do over the next several months, to give you a thoroughly biblical eschatology, not related to everything, but to one specific thing, the coming reign of Christ on, on the earth. And by that, motivate you as the church to persevere and stick to the mission until our Lord returns. And in the process, I'm sure we'll answer some, a number of questions that you have. We'll probably create some new ones. Because admittedly, there are some aspects of, uh, of the topic that the Lord has left us with less info than, than we, would, we would like. I think that's, that's why people actually try to fill in some of the gaps. There, there are some gaps that are there. And frankly, that's one of the reasons that there are, there's much confusion surrounding the topic or, or again, equally frustrating attempts to, to try to fill in, fill in the blanks. And while it should surprise none of you, and I'm sure it doesn't, as you read our, our Constitution and our doctrinal statement, I mean, we at Timberlake are decidedly and convictionally premillennial. The series is, is not to say that that biblical position answers all the questions or that that will even happen during, during this, this series. And I completely acknowledge that there are Christ-loving men and women that we would heartily agree with on the gospel and other things, men that we respect, that would have different eschatology. And this series is not meant to disparage them in any way, shape, or form, or shake your trust in, in their work otherwise. I mean, it's to help you see for yourself what the Bible teaches on this matter and why we would say that they're wrong based on Scripture in passages that we, that we disagree. We don't have to uh, agree on every secondary matter to be, to be brothers, but, but as your elders, we also don't or don't have to shy away from proclaiming our own convictions as a, as a church with gusto either. I mean, if I didn't believe what I was teaching you, that that's what the Bible says, then I really shouldn't open my mouth. And we'll, we'll do both. We'll acknowledge the differences with our brothers, but hold firm to our own convictions. And in the end, if you disagree, then we're happy to have you. Praise the Lord that, that you love Christ and you're here. As long as you don't do what I know you won't do, which would be undermine the teaching of the church or create division. I, I can remember getting a living example of this. I, I, I've mentioned uh, an example from church history before with, with how um, George Whitfield handled his disagreement with, with, with John Wesley, just how beautiful that was. But, but I got a living example of how two brothers deal with differences in eschatology with John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul years ago. Because you know they have very different eschatology. And John opened the Shepherds Conference. I was there. Wasn't on the front row, but I was not far, far behind. And, and R.C. Sproul was a guest speaker. One of John's guest speakers. John has, had invited him to this conference. And John always opens the Shepherd's Conference, and he opened with a sermon titled, Why Every Self-Respecting Calvinist Ought to Be a Premillennialist, with R.C. Sproul grinningly sitting on the front row whenever John announced the title of his, of his series. And neither man, you know, was anything other than kind and gracious to each other, but neither minced words whenever it came to the Scriptures. And that, that's really my heart. Um, I really don't care what, what I'm called, a premillennialist or futurist. I mean, maybe not what Michael Block called a, a pan-millennialist, who was, he said was the guy who says, I don't know, I just know it's all going to pan out in the end. Um, 
I mean, probably like you, I just want to take the Bible at face value based on my conclusions on Scripture and respect others trying to do the same thing. But as I say that, I do not want to give you the impression I'm not going to try to convince you to be a premillennialist because I'm firmly convinced that's what the Bible says and teaches. Because I think you're going to see a straightforward reading of the Bible would not lead you to any other position. In fact, I don't know anyone. Maybe you're an exception, but I don't know anyone who comes to an amillennial or postmillennial position without some outside theological influence, in addition to Scripture. They went somewhere to try to figure out some nuances in Scripture, and, and someone influenced them. There's a book that they read, a theology book or, or, or something else, because the Old Testament and the New Testament are so clear about the expectation of a coming earthly kingdom and a future for ethnic Israel. I mean, you either have to change the literal nature of prophecy and make certain things in, in the prophecy symbolic or change the meaning of Israel, say it's not the nation but a spiritual group of, of, of people. And, and most of the, of the amillennial and postmillennial influence that, that, that's in the, in the church today and conservative evangelical churches actually comes from Reformed theologians or the Reformers themselves. I mean, amillennialism was the position of the early church as it was developing, whose primary method of interpretation was allegory, which became the position of Augustine, and that became the position of the Catholic Church, and Augustine's influence over the Reformers leaked in, into their writings. I mean, there's been a welcomed resurgence of Reformed soteriology, a biblical view, a biblical study of, of salvation, with many people studying Calvinistic theologians and in doing that, they've picked up their eschatology as, as, as well. In fact, many people are coming out of churches which were revivalistic and Arminian in nature. And so people that came out of those churches have concluded that if these, if these churches were wrong on, on salvation, then, then they might be wrong on eschatology as well. And if these theologians are right on salvation, then maybe they're right on eschatology as as well. And like me, some of you have come out of churches that love Jesus thoroughly but didn't, but didn't teach you much doctrine or go very deep or preach expositionally. And I love the church I was saved in. I'm here as a product of that, of that church. In fact, when I had an opportunity to be ordained by, by another church that, that was more prominent, I said, no, I want to be ordained by my little independent church back in Red House, West Virginia, because these people were, 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 were my family. They didn't do any of those things intentionally. I mean, no one had ever taught them doctrine that deeply or how to preach expositionally or, or go very, very deep. You may have come out of that background. Now you've discovered grace and all of its glorious truths and you're rejoicing in that. Praise God. But you also may remember back to, again, some of those prophecy conferences which were full of those complex drawings and extreme details about which modern country is which in Revelation or the Internet is the mark of the beast or the images of those demons, the locusts in Revelation 9 are demons flying spaceships and other things like that. I mean, I can remember a preacher saying one time, sang in the choir, the choir would go to other churches to sing, to open up revival services, and it was a, it was a revival service with a prophecy speaker. We went to sing, and I was there, so I'm sitting, in the, and, and the guy, the message, I don't remember all of it, but I remember this distinctly. He, he tried to say that the Hebrew letter for, for Sheen, which looks like a W. Somehow that related to the number six, meaning that every time you type WWW, you were signing the mark of the beast, and so you should not use the internet. This is when the internet was first coming out. If that's your experience, or anything like that, that's not what we mean by premillennialism. And I would encourage you to get your Bible over these next several months and listen intently and see if Scripture does not bear out what we're saying. Because if it, when it comes to this topic, there are two extremes you want to avoid. I mean, one is making it the primary focus of everything. 
and you can do this with just about anything. We are the family-driven church. We are the expository preaching church. We are the, the bus-running church. We are the prophecy church. There are some churches that everything's about prophecy, everything about the diagrams and the details, again, trying to peer farther and deeper into the future than Scripture actually gives. The other extreme, though, that you want to avoid is that the topic really doesn't matter that much at all. It's a secondary issue, or you can take different positions on it, and it doesn't matter, or it's really, it's just so complicated that God just kind of leaves the end open. That's the pan-millennialist guy. He isn't clear about these things, so why pay much mind to it? I mean, the problem with that is the Bible was given to make the truth clear. So these things are in the Bible. There's something called the perspicuity of Scripture, meaning that Scripture is clear. You, you don't have to be, you know, in a mystery cult to understand what the Bible says. It was given for us to understand. God surely doesn't give us the whole plan of salvation and then just kind of mush up the end. Not only that, as one writer pointed out, you, you can't explain the biblical storyline and not address the timing and the nature of, of, of Jesus' messianic and mediatorial and millennial reign. I mean, you, you can't even trace the whole plan of salvation without dealing with that. I say it plainly. I mean, the Bible speaks clearly about the beginning and creation. It speaks obviously, very obviously, about the nation of Israel and the first coming of Christ and His work on the cross. It gives the church explicit instructions on how to govern itself and what's pleasing to the Lord in the epistles. and So then to conclude that, the God, that God didn't give us direction about the end or that it doesn't matter that much is just nonsensical. I said in the beginning, the end matters very much. It matters right now. And that's one of the things I want to try to convince you of in this, in this series, the timing and nature of Jesus' kingdom reign. That's something that every Christian ought to want to know about. Not only does the Bible say it's, it's a Christian's fuel for hope, but it also shapes the way that you think about the church's role and God's purposes right now. I mean, are we hunkering down, just waiting on Christ to return? Are we to wage war, culture war and, until the church takes over society? And you see, what, what you understand the Bible to teach about the kingdom of Christ drastically affects your, your understanding of the role of the church, your role of missions. Your, I don't have a cigar and a flamethrower like Doug Wilson, but I do have the Bible and I hope to use it over the next several months. And in these series, we'll answer questions like, what does the Old Testament say about the coming kingdom? I mean, does the Old Testament expect a literal earthly kingdom to come? That's the Old Testament. Did that change the coming of Christ? I mean, was there something that happened whenever the Lord showed up that, that changed what the Old Testament foretold. I mean, what did the Jews and Jesus and his disciples have to say about the kingdom? Did they expect a spiritual kingdom, a literal kingdom? Did they expect Israel to be part of that kingdom, the nation to have some future role? And then what did the apostles and their epistles anticipate? I mean, did they negate all of that in the old and when Christ walked the, the earth with some future revelation? I mean, do they expect the kingdom to be future and, and literal, one that involves Israel? And I, I think if you answer those questions from Scripture without a theological lens, there's only one answer. In fact, if you apply the same method of interpretation to the prophecies of the Old Testament that you would to any other passage, I think it's very difficult, dare I say impossible, to conclude that, that they were expecting anything other than a literal kingdom on the earth. When you read the Old Testament, it's very clear what it says. There's a future kingdom, and the kingdom will involve Israel. And the only reason that you would conclude at least the Old Testament would say otherwise is if you read the New Testament back into, into the Old, or and then come to the New Testament and, and, and make assumptions about the church replacing Israel, because there's no explicit verse that says that. There's several passages that leave questions or make, make allusions or, or implications, which is what people use to connect dots. There's no passage in the Old or New Testament that says the church has replaced Israel and God has negated his irrevocable, unconditional promises, which are Israel's by election. 
Now, if you studied this topic deeply, you know it's a little more complicated than that, which is why we're taking several months to, to walk through it. But, it. but I think if you stand back and you look at it as a whole, I think that's what you'll see. Which means it's not just a matter of, of eschatology or study of the end times, but it affects how you deal with prophetic scripture. It, it, it affects your, your methods of interpretation and consistency in that. I mean, was God clear in the Bible? Did, did he mean what he said? Can his word be, be trusted? Not every position of eschatology uh, you know, um, tramples on those things, but some do. I mean, does God make a promise and then retract it? Are his promises revocable because of sin and disobedience? I mean, did God make an unconditional promise to Abraham and then reiterate it to Isaac and then reiterate that exact same promise to Jacob, who is Israel, which I would just know that all of those men are sinful and disobedient to the covenant that God made, and God kept making promises to these these sinful people. I think if if you draw the conclusion that Israel lost the national promises of the kingdom because of their disobedience... There seems to be a major problem reconciling those two things because that means that God may make promises to you that can also be withdrawn. MacArthur, in that message with Sproul that I mentioned, I told you that he didn't mince words, even though that they were very brotherly about it. MacArthur said when you actually think about that aspect of election, when you, when you think about it like that, postmillennialism and amillennialism is better suited for Arminians. She said, are people who believe that you can obviously lose your salvation based on disobedience. So he said, this doctrine that says all of the promises in the Old Testament are negated and shifted to the church because of Israel's disobedience, which would make sense if you believe that disobedience can remove those things. But it doesn't make sense if you're Calvinistic or Baptist or Reformed to people who believe in God's electing grace and eternal security. But I think that's a question that you have, to, you, have to, you have to tackle, you have to work through. It's more of a, an applicational question, but, but is election unconditional? Is it unilateral? Did God make it? And is it... Is, is it dependent on Israel in some way? Of course, the Mosaic Covenant is, but we're talking about the Abrahamic Covenant. We're talking about the Davidic Covenant. Is it dependent upon you or whether you obey or not? And these are questions that are at stake whenever you deal with matters of eschatology. The doctrine of last things is a secondary doctrine, meaning you can be wrong on it and disagree on it and still go to heaven and still be brothers, but, but you shouldn't think it doesn't matter. You shouldn't think it's that it's okay to get it wrong or it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. I think it affects your hermeneutics. It affects your understanding of election and predestination, the purpose of the church, it's per- the church's purpose in the world, a Christian's hope and motivation for perseverance and suffering. And so while you're free to believe, whatever you, you're convicted in your conscience to believe on secondary matters, I don't think that you're, you're free to, to be loose with it. I'm not saying any of you. You are. I'm speaking in general. And I think when you get to those areas, that this, this, this topic gets near and dear to, to my heart because the two doctrines that the Lord by His grace put in my heart, there, there are two that, I, that I've never struggled with. I didn't know what they were called. I think I've shared this with you before. And that was the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. I Again, I didn't know what that was. I just knew that instinctively, I wasn't looking for God. He found me. I was going as hard and as fast in the other direction. And I knew by experience that living life based on my own ideas ended really badly. So I really didn't want to base anything on me. I wanted to base it on the, on the Scriptures. So, so if I wanted to know anything, I, I wanted to find it in God's Word, and God, God's Word alone. I, again, I later were, learned the fancy words for, for those are sovereignty and sufficient. So those are two things that, that are precious to, to me. I think if you get those two doctrines right, you're going to have a fruitful Christian life and a lot of stability in your life. I don't like Arminian theology, theology that puts man's will above God's. I don't like people messing with the authorial intent of Scripture. 
I don't like bad hermeneutics, even though I'm sure I fail at applying them at times. I think everybody does because we're fallible. But I don't like changing the rules of, of hermeneutics. So no matter how well you apply them, you, you get wrong conclusion that messes with Scripture. What does that have to do with a series on eschatology? I think, I think the answer is, is a whole lot, depending upon how you handle it. Your eschatology and how you arrive at conclusions about the last things intersects both of those truths. Don't mishear me. I am not saying, if you're all-mill or post-mill, that you're intentionally doing either of those things, denying God's sovereignty and sufficiency. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that those conclusions must be reconciled you have to deal with that possibility. Just like I have to reconcile what is literal and what is symbolic in a grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. I mean, are the 144,000 in Revelation meant to be literal? What about the thousand years in Revelation 20? Is that meant to be literal? What, what's symbolic? What's literal? What I'm saying is God calls Israel my elect, and election is unconditional and irrevocable. Nowhere else in the Bible is it conditional. No one believes that the elect angels or the elect of the church are temporary and that they could be lost. So, so why would we believe that about Israel? Well, because of their disobedience. But again, election is not based on anything that they did, but on what, what God chose to do. And Well, it, not all Israel is Israel, true, but, but God still has things he hasn't fulfilled to his remnant yet. So we believe that he must. It matters because of interpretation, God's character, the clarity of Scripture. And again, I don't think God's going to be so clear about all the beginning in creation and then kind of make the end fuzzy. I mean, it makes sense. He's clear about those things. He's also clear about the end. I don't mean it's easy, but I think you can get there. That's why we're we're doing this. We want to be clear about the end. And we want you to know why it matters. We want to connect that clarity to why it, it, it matters. And we want to give you a thoroughly biblical articulation of the position, not filling gaps that Scripture doesn't give or, or do the other things that we've already talked about. And, and we want you to know what our church teaches and, and, and why it does. And let me tell you what we are, we are going to be talking about concerning the, the, the last days. I mean, talking about the earthly reign of Christ. What, what are the last days? Coming at the end of the last days, this, this earthly, earthly kingdom. And the last days is a period of time between the comings of Christ. Christ has promised. He, he's accomplished his sacrificial work. He's risen. He's ascended. And he's building his church. And predominantly, the last days is a period where God has graciously called Gentiles into, into salvation including them into the people of God, and at the same time is chastening Israel as a nation for unbelief and rejection of the, of the Messiah. But, but the inclusion of the Gentiles, the inclusion of us, and the temporary rejection of Israel will in no way prohibit the future kingdom that, that is coming or remove that, that, that kingdom. It's still promised when these days are completed, the end of these last days, the Jewish nation, the ones that are alive, will repent, will begin to turn to God, and that will bring about the second coming. And according to Zechariah, they'll look upon the one whom they pierced. And when they do, that will inaugurate this intermediate earthly kingdom of Jesus where he'll reign in Jerusalem over all the earth. And that kingdom is necessary, and it's also temporary, not the final phase. It's a necessary thing, it's a temporary thing. It's necessary because the, of, of, of that Christ is the last Adam, and he must do what the first Adam failed to do, to take dominion and fill the earth with, with God's glory. Christ must reign over creation as Adam failed to, to do that. But the earth is not the final state. That kingdom is not the final state. The earthly kingdom will ultimately give way to the eternal state, which we called heaven we walked through this morning, and that's what we'll lay out over the, over the next many, many weeks. And we'll also answer some major questions that are legitimate questions that come from opposing views. And that'll come later in the, in the series. So, I mean, I'm, I'm using terms like amillennialism and postmillennialism, and, 
and assuming that you know what, what that means. So let me just give you a, a brief sketch. They're, they're probably more similar than, than you, might, you might think. Amillennialism and postmillennialism are similar but different. But here's how they're, they're, they're similar. They, they, they both deny that there will be an earthly kingdom for, for Israel. An earthly kingdom, Christ's reign, and, and one that, that's focused on some of the promises to Israel. I mean, amillennialism is, is what some call the pessimistic view. And you can even hear that in the, in the title, the, the word millennium. Comes from two words, mille, uh, Latin meaning thousand, and annum meaning year. So hence a thousand years. But ah, millennialism has an A in front of it, which negates what follows after the A, like someone who's, who's apolitical or asymptomatic. You heard our beloved Dr. Fauci talk about that ad nauseum, right? An asymptomatic person. That's somebody who's non political or non symptomatic. So an amillennialist is someone that doesn't believe there is a literal kingdom coming. They believe that Christ's kingdom has already come spiritually. It's being spiritually fulfilled right now. If you're amillennial, you believe that the kingdom is happening right now and the kingdom is going to be between the first and second coming of Christ. It's happening in these, in these last days and that kingdom is reigning in the, in the church. And under that position, between these two comings, the world's going to get worse until Jesus comes, hence me dubbing it or others dubbing it the pessimistic twin of the post-millennial folks who think it's going to get better, not, not worse. And this spiritual kingdom, which is happening right now in amillennialism, will, will end at Jesus' second coming. And then after that, there'll be a general resurrection, including judgment for both believers and unbelievers, and then the eternal state will come. So an amillennialist says the kingdom is now and the kingdom is spiritual in, in nature. Premillennialism says the kingdom is future and the kingdom is earthly. We don't deny in any way that Jesus is king and he reigns and, as king in heaven and he reigns in the hearts of people. We're just saying that there's still an earthly kingdom that must come to fulfill Specific promises, not only in the prophets, but going all the way back to Genesis 1 through 3, what Adam was supposed to do. And again, amillennialism, no kingdom, was the predominant position in the early church, which was shaped by a lot of, of allegory. I think those bad hermeneutics laid the foundation for spiritualizing scripture in instead of speaking of literal things. And so the early church up through Constantine was influenced by it, and then it was popularized by Augustine in his book, The City of God. So it became the primary position of the Roman Catholic Church, and then many reformers consider Augustine the father of their soteriology, and so that was picked up by, by then. Postmillennialism, we call, would call that the optimistic view. Again, there's no literal kingdom, but it's optimistic. Under that view, the, the kingdom promises are being fulfilled, again, between the two comings of Christ, between the first and the second coming. And Jesus is reigning from heaven, and his followers in the church are now advancing the kingdom of God on the earth. And they would say the kingdom starts small, and then it grows until it finally dominates the, the, the whole world. And so the mustard seed concept in in the, the Gospels. So from a post-millennial perspective, things aren't going to get worse, they're, they're going to get better. As the Gospel permeates all areas of the world and, and society, Christian principles and morality will be accepted, education, government, all of society will come under the dominion of, of Christian thought, and then, when that happens then, Jesus will return. There's some things that are really attractive about that. You know, the church is going to take over the world and, and we're, going to, we're going to trample down all of the evil influence that's, that, that, that's out there. There's, that attraction is why some people are, are drawn to it. Like the amillennialist, upon Christ's return, postmillennialist says there's one resurrection which includes everyone. There will be a judgment of believers and unbelievers in the eternal state. And this group would see the Great Commission as that mandate to transform society and the nations through the gospel. So 
to summarize. Both non-millennial positions believe that the kingdom is occurring right now between the two comings and that the Lord's second coming, when He comes, doesn't begin a kingdom or His earthly reign, but, but it's the end of His spiritual reign. And then that begins the eternal state. So that new heavens and the new earth is going to happen then, right when Jesus comes, not this intermediate kingdom. As I said, we're going to do our best to, to show you that what the Scripture says about both and our conclusion that both are not correct. But what we all agree on, pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, is that Jesus is Lord and that He's coming again. Hallelujah. And regardless of when it's going to happen, our Savior is going to reign for all eternity. And we're going to be with Him. In fact, we must. He must. Because He's been given preeminence by God because of work on the cross. I mean, Jesus Christ as the Creator has the right to rule and He's become the, the Redeemer and, and He's been given the right to be the Reconciler of all things. I mean, this is Colossians chapter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. That Mount Everest passage about the preeminence of Christ in Colossians chapter 1. For by Him all things were created. Talking about Jesus both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist or hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And the result, so that He Himself will come to have first place, preeminence in everything. Why? For it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in Him and through Him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself. Having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, all of creation will be reconciled to Jesus Christ, either through judgment or through salvation. Glory to His name. So that's why, that's what we hope to do. Um, the differences that are, that are there, let me explain to you now how this series is going to, to, to run. It's small, but I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through it. It's going to start tonight, and it's going to run through May 5th, which is a long time, but there are normal breaks in Easter and some other things in there. It's going to have four major parts. There's an introduction, which is tonight. And then we're going to do biblical support for his reign. What's the Bible say about it? Trace Old Testament, New Testament, the epistles, and things in Revelation. Then a biblical defense of that will answer common questions that are legitimate questions that are brought up. And then we'll have a conclusion or application. So the introduction is tonight. Next week... Tim Moshera will begin the biblical support for the premillennial return and reign of, of Christ. And he'll start with the fact that it was anticipated in Eden. So he'll show us the root of Christ's earthly reign is rooted in Genesis 1 through 3. Not just something that you dropped out of the sky in Revelation 20. It actually begins in the beginning and give us a biblical theology of the kingdom. See, I just get to tell you all what we're going to do, and then these guys are going, to, are going to actually have to do all the work. This is the way I've designed it. The following Sunday, Clay will then trace it through the Old Testament and show how it was announced in the prophets. You've got to deal with the Old Testament. Then I'll come back and pick up the New Testament, all of that discourse, the book of Acts, up through Acts, up to the Christ ascension, show you that it was expected there. Then another Sunday, tracing the expectation through the epistles. We'll, we'll deal with, with Romans. There is the root in Israel being broken off and Gentiles being grafted in. And then we'll go to how it was fulfilled in Revelation 20. Clay will do that, spend two evenings walking through this pivotal prophetic passage. Two sermons, actually, in Revelation 20 because it is significant. And Tim will come back and lead, lead us into the third phase of its defense where we'll 
respond to these questions. Questions, answer questions of the opposing views, amillennial, postmillennial. And then I'll come back and conclude the series on a message of the kingdom and God's mission and point out the threat that, that some of these other positions actually pose to the mission of the church. Rather than giving the church mission, it actually attacks the real mission of the, of the church, which is the so what message. Why does it matter? And I hope that you'll see that it, it, it matters greatly. That, that's our desire to walk through the scriptures with you, to base it on the scriptures, to do that graciously, and then let you and the Lord work through some of the passages, answer some questions, bring some other ones up. But what we'll all agree on in the end is that Jesus is coming again and he is going to reign. He's our Lord and he's our Savior and he is building his church through, through the gospel. That's where we're going. That's what we're going to hope to do. Pray for us as we as we we do that, and hopefully it'll be it'll be edifying uh, to you. Let me close us in prayer. Father, I do thank you for your word. Thank you for helping me this morning, and even tonight. You know my heart. Um, you know my desire to know your truth and communicate it and to do that uh, humbly and yet convictionally and, and I pray that we would be able we would be able to do that I pray that you would help us to to be helpful to your people and to your church we are so thankful that you've given us a book that has context and grammar and and as Peter said there are things like some things written by Paul that are, that, are, that are more difficult to understand, but they can be understood. It's not obscure. By the help of your Holy Spirit and, and work, we, we can arrive there. Help us do that. I thank you for this church. I thank you for everyone here tonight. I thank you for everyone that's part of it. Uh, I am so thankful to be part of Timberlake. A biblical church. Sinners trying to trust in your truth and you and, and, and yet unified around the gospel and what a beautiful thing to be part of. Thank you for blessing and protect us, guard us, keep us from the wicked one. Keep the elders, Lord, here. Keep us pure. Keep us from falling. Keep us from being distracted. Give us physical strength, spiritual strength to do your work until, until you call each of us home and we might be faithful might hear praise from you um, that we were good servants of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask all these things. Amen.